The greatest thing from Quebec since Celine Dion and GSP. A pair of siblings. A couple of stellar young men. Two brothers. These two young men. Two siblings. The hard-hitting pair represent Canada. Welcome to Thinking Bros. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. We're your favorite corner store philosophers trying to figure out life one conundrum at a time. And today we're going to be talking about the Rosenhan experiment, which was an experiment done by a psychologist or psychiatrist, whatever they called them in the 70s. Well, those are two N different things. Please, please, let me finish. I'm doing the intro. But before that, I would like to say to everyone, honestly, shalom. Right, that's the thing. Peace be upon you. And yeah, and say the other thing we're going to be discussing. That's too, pretty so. much the. I mean, <laughs> I, like it feels like I could stop right there just because it's so holistic. But also, what? the second Dude. the second thing we're going to be talking about is I forgot. I kind of forgot a little bit. We just listened. Yeah, to right, it. right. The episode of by very bad <laughs> wizards and continuing with the trend of um, you know robbing them of their content. No, but um, I think this is a new low point. Usually, we read the original text they discuss. Without even looking at the episode, honestly. That's fair. That's fair. I think I think it's now, very meta. It's gonna be like in, inception, like podcastception, because they're discussing something. We're well, actually, discussing, yeah. yeah, they're discussing Tamler's book on yeah, honor, yeah. and so, so so essentially, okay. So, so, so. Tamler discusses honor in his book, for which he did research. They're discussing him discussing honor, and we're discussing them discussing him discussing honor. And someone so is listening to... And someone is listening. So if you guys <laughs> want to do an episode on this episode, it might be the, the deepest episode of Podcastception ever. Yeah. Quite possibly. So let's start with the Rosenhan experiment. Maybe... Um, I, I know you like summarizing, right? So maybe you can start. Well, I do it instinctively and you don't, so... It didn't have to get personal. We can just <laughs> keep on going with the episode. So the Rosenhan experiment is... Rosenhan was a psychiatrist, but it's part of the anti-psychiatry movement in correct me if I'm wrong, 1970s? Which, if he was part of an honor culture, spoiler alert, okay. he wouldn't have attacked psychiatry. Fun enough. Maybe, yeah, or he would have gotten a much more lashback right, right. from attacking psychiatry. All good. What did I say? Lashback. Lashback? <laughs> we'll have it on the replay. <laughs> You're gonna edit, like, the first podcast you edit with, like, replaying clips and you put this, which was basically a, a study I think a book was written about this, about being sane in insane places, it was called. And basically, the experiment was to sort of, you know, criticize or even discredit um, psychiatric hospitals. And the way they did that is by sending uh, a couple of people, eight, eight. eight people, throughout the United States uh, uh, to different psychiatric hospitals and getting normal people or people that are, you know, considered normal by society, that have no diagnosed problems, that, that have no psychological problems, getting them infiltrated into psychiatric hospital by uh, faking symptoms. So I think all of them did the same thing, right? So they come in, they call the psychiatric hospital and say they're hearing voices. Yeah, but it's a little bit more, more interesting than that. I, yeah, I, I, I caught a, a sentence in there that, that was interesting. They they say the voices say something like hollow or thud. Empty or, thud, yeah. Yeah, yeah, empty thud hollow. And so <clears throat> the 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 summary we read, I guess we read a summary about... But, the by book. the way, not to interrupt you, but but definitely to interrupt you. I f like, you know, I like to judge, like in the sense where it, it was administered in the first episode. And I can quite confidently say that that thing we read was written by a high school student. <laughs> it, it really, it really feels like it. Because yeah. the way it's presented as well, it's, it's like the, the, the step one of a learning, learning science. The person says, um, 
Also, I think it's a she. That, that's also another impression I have. The, okay. uh, the person says, like, the independent variable was this. The dependent variable was this. And, you know, I appreciated the simplicity. Right. I, I actually really I did appreciate too. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a three page PDF of it, like in an Italian journal summarizing the Rosenhan experiment. It, that's what we read. We I mean, read even it. if it's an Italian journal journal and it's a translation, I don't see why the word all should have only one L. Yeah, the big mistakes there were, and there was that's another why one. I thought like high school students. Uh, like there was a plural that in, in any case, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, they got eight sane people to infiltrate psychiatric hospitals. By saying they were hearing voices and the voices were saying hollow, thud, empty. And what they say in the article is that they did, they chose those words because those are existential symptoms. So like uh, signs of, I don't know, an existential crisis of feeling empty, feeling they have no purpose or something. And specifically that those were not in the DSM-2 at the time. So the, the, the DSM-2 was the manual used by psychiatrists to, you know, diagnose and categorize uh, illnesses and i think there was no section on existential you know pathology of, of like that being an actual diagnosable thing that people had to be admitted to the psychiatry hospital for right so so they show up to the hospital and well actually they call they yeah call. they call up and they say they have these symptoms they go in for you know a diagnosis and to be admitted and the only thing they present that's the only symptom they present is not even really a, a recognized symptom for for schizophrenia, which is what they're going to be admitted for uh, as a majority. Soon after, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and well, they're admitted. I mean, th the initial part, I think, is not so problematic for the psychiatric hospitals, I guess. Because it, 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 it sort of is, is though. Yeah, I, I yeah. read a response article mm. um, to, actually, to Rosenhan critiques. And what the, the, the guy, I, yeah. It was an Indian journal. What the guy said was that the person who rewrote the DSM, I think Spit, Spitzer or something like that, the person that in charge with the, of the DSM at the time who wrote the DSM-3 had in mind, and this is something that that person didn't admit to, but the, his wife and colleagues did, oh. that in rewriting DSM-3, a question he asked himself was, would Rosenhan's pseudo-patients get past this test? Which, as we'll find out, is a good criteria. A criteria on, on but yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Um, and well, they got admitted with a diagnosis for schizophrenia, uh, and as soon as they got into the psychiatric hospitals, they stopped faking symptoms. And th they didn't act like they desperately wanted to get out. They didn't act in any, any manner that would suggest they have a mental illness. They just, they, they were just like, okay, I, I'm, as soon as they got in, they stopped exhibiting those symptoms or you know they weren't exhibiting those symptoms so yeah. they stopped saying they exhibited those symptoms and they acted totally normally although normal normality is really subjective but sure okay <laughs> they acted in a culturally appropriate way at the time <laughs> <laughs> um and, and uh and you know they, they got medication from the from the psychiatric hospital and they always flushed it in the toilet they, yeah 2200 uh, pills for eight patients yeah. For an average stay of what, 19, 19 days? days yeah. yeah. Pretty crazy. And the, the article we read said that number of pills and only two were swallowed. That, that was like a weird even detail. That's, yeah, it was funny, but even that's worrying, right? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, what could it do to a normal person, right? But I mean, if they're given, giving it at that rate, I think I did the, uh, I think I divided it for my blog. I think it's 160 per average. Uh, no, no, it's much more than per that. Per day, you're saying? 360. Not per person. 360. Let's let's do the math. 2,200 by 8. Yeah, 260, right? Let's call it an even 10. 
divided by but wait 260 for what 260 per average patient per stay 2600 260 pills oh. per on, on for an I'm, average i'm not going to do the math okay <laughs> i can tell you that it's kind of that okay um it's a little bit more so so okay, yeah as 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 yeah. we said then they stopped you know saying they had symptoms they they were yeah the voices stopped the the day they were admitted yeah and they acted completely as they would you know in their everyday life they tried to interact with the the doctors there as we'll talk about later and it took an average of 19 days for them to get released so uh you know they stayed there for a bit less than three weeks for uh, on average and the longest stay was 53 days yeah 53 yeah. days with a, a totally you know sane person in a in a psychiatric hospital um anything to say about that i mean my biggest thing is usually a study with eight people in science, the problem it would encounter is that, you know, statistical validity is reached when the sample size is at 30, right? At the very least. Now, with eight people, might as well call it eight case studies. Right. Right. But the thing that is extremely worrying is that even when you take a thousand people and let's say give them Advil, the variability in how it affects them is going to be enormous. And there's a good chance you're you're you could prove that like Advil is, doesn't have statistically significant effects. Something that is extremely accepted to actually work and you know works. Now for eight people to come in with one symptom that isn't even in the DSM, and you know there was no mention of failed integrations of pseudo patients. Like every like eight people wanted to be admitted and eight people were admitted. That is insane to me a little bit. Uh, well, at the same time, the, just the getting admitted part i feel like if you want to get admitted to the psychiatric hospital either you're insane and you need the help and you want to get admitted or if you're sane and you want to get admitted then that means you're insane you know what i'm saying like if if someone wants to get admitted into a hospital into a psychiatric hospital i guess they should be allowed to okay but well there are legal implications and i don't want to like get into the nitty-gritty but it's also like imagine you need an insane plea for a crime you did. Right. You go in, you say, oh, you know, I, I hear voices that tell me bad things. Okay, you're a patient now. Right, right. But And also it's it's resource management, right? Like, okay, I have these patients with schizophrenia who, you know, have epileptic seizures and hear voices that tell them to do bad things and they've done bad things. I have all these confirmations that they are actually sick. And then another one comes in with like random words being like being heard, vocal hallucinations, which could be due to you know some some episodes or not necessarily schizophrenia and now they get admitted i mean it, it seems as though if nothing else it's just bad resource hospital resource management yeah yeah for sure <clears throat> um yeah yeah i can see like imagine someone like commits a murder and then instantly does what what the rosenhan people did and just gets admitted to the hospital yes, but, yes, yeah. yeah but at the same time that's what people do sometimes right if if i judge if, if i take my judgment completely from the movies i watch some people just like like get an insane plea when they're not insane and it, right, it's they hard. study up their dsm they know like yeah. oh hey this i have to have five out of eight symptoms and therefore i will fail. And, and it's hard for the other side to argue against it right the the way you verify it is by getting experts involved and getting you know probably psychiatrists to diagnose the the person yeah yeah but i think beyond just the criteria being really bad what, what I wanted to talk about was one, yeah, I feel like it's such like uh, an adventurous psychology experiment that that is so lacking today. I feel like, uh, well, I, I, it's it's a matter of like, like Kuhn's uh, ideas about scientific revolution, right? We're right now we're in a normal science period where hmm, 
I need to explain it if I talk about it. Yeah, but look, for, for me, it's not necessarily the wild experiments because I feel like those would happen anyway and we probably hear about them. For me, the problem is ethics committees, right? Like when I was doing my research in administering light shock with a machine that probably can't even go to a, to, to a point where they can damage tissue, we, need, we needed to wait like three months for an ethics committee approval and paperwork and blah, blah, blah. You know, in the 1970s when there were no restrictions on such a thing. Now, yes, of course, they, to get an advance on what you're, you're maybe going to say, we're in the pre-scientific stage where there was no, no one paradigm oh, okay. that's, that's accepted and... Not everyone has to stick to it like we do today, where we have to, you know, operate in the boundaries of uh, what we now call science. Wild things could happen. But the thing is, you know, every psychology student is like, no, that's that's so horrible. Like Stanford prison experiment, uh, Skinner's dogs, uh, rats in cages and blah, 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 and hurting animals and blah, blah. But we're all quoting quoting it and we're all being like, oh, yes, operant conditioning. Oh, yes, classical conditioning. Like. Everyone, I don't know, every great discovery was made without limitations. That's the, it's, it's unfortunate to say. And even, even when people thought that genetics were everything, then there's the Stanford uh, prison experiment where, you know, people were randomly assigned as guards and uh, prisoners. And then the guards exhibited more and more extreme behavior towards the prisoners. And it was inhumane and whatever. And that showed that the strength of a situation could overtake genetics, right? Like, that's how revolutions happen when you operate outside of the paradigm. And today, it doesn't even mean to, you know, pursue. Like, if if I wanted to be a revolutionary, it wouldn't be to you know, uh, clandestinely pursue qualitative psychology. Like, I'd have to, I'd have to do horrible things to revolutionize something. Yeah, but I mean, you, you know, you're talking about ethics as if it's limiting. Like, oh, well, it is limiting for sure. I mean, that's undeniable. But it's about the human rights and whatnot the norm the normative normative claim you put to it is like about if it's right or wrong you know it, it's it's limiting for sure but i think we should still have ethics committees and tighter restrictions that than what they had at the time probably but well anyway i i, I guess I, I i don't know what your claim is so i don't know what i can say i agree or disagree with you i mean look, about re but re realistically yeah they, they they have to be there blah blah, blah. i'm just saying that you know, there's AI, so we're going to advance, but we're not... Like, if we are wrong in the current paradigm of science, it's going to take much longer to prove that. Because, you know, back in the day, you know, you know, back in the day when you could just be an inventor? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, you could just stay at home and just, like, be like, you know what? I'm going to, I don't know, discover electricity. And that's how you make... These but days, it, yeah, okay. everything, you can trace back how everything is funded. You can trace back how, what ethics committee and whatever... You can trace back, oh, if um, if these reviewers don't like, if these referees during the peer process review don't like you, you're never going to see the light of day. Like, it's so normalized and so, you know, contained and we're so sensible to divergences from it that I believe that, I mean, it's almost impossible to change the current paradigm. And so if it's wrong, we're just digging a hole we're never gonna get out of it. okay uh, first Again, of all I am think... i proposing solutions like uh, abolish yeah, yeah. Uh, ethics committees no you no, have to no. understand i it. feel like you're I idealizing the inventors at the same time or their lives like uh, as if as if back then they were there weren't like set roles like people were farmers and priests and whatever <laughs> just like so doesn't know history uh and and they had th those set roles and those inventors and were dinosaur still... hunters and dinosaur, <laughs> uh, you know, gatherers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and those people still like uh Leonardo da Vinci by working on a flying machine was probably still like a, a heretic somewhat or like doing things that the like his mother didn't approve of because she wanted him to have a stable life or something. Yeah, yeah, and look, the other thing is obviously you only hear about the good or you only hear about the extreme. You may hear about the bad, but of course, when we're in the context of um, you know psychological studies, they're gonna tell us about the the good stuff that that came out of it. Or if they tell us the bad, they're gonna be like, oh my god, this is horrible and like it goes against every human right, blah blah. But look at this discovery it made, and we couldn't have done it without it because you had to subject people to horrible circumstances to even squeeze this out of human nature sure sure well okay like not talking about all the other experiments um i think with the rosenhan experiment like the ethical worries that that's what they say in the article uh well the doctors were deceived which is obviously unethical like that's that's the point of the experiment one and two high school student mentality i think yeah and and number two is like that's their professional job to not be deceived by well I guess it's not their specific aim to not be deceived. Their their specific aim is like... But I mean, to a certain extent it is, right? The yeah, legal yeah. matters, right? Yeah, if yeah, you can yeah. claim insanity, well, it's definitely his job to yeah, be like... Yeah, if you're going to oh. be brought up into court and uh, sort of influence the future of someone's life and decide a case, you know, because you're an expert. I don't know if that's how it worked back then. That's sort of your job too, to be able to, to distinguish between them. And well, obviously there's no other way the Rosenhan experiment could have been done. They had to deceive the the doctors, otherwise the experiment wouldn't have taken place. And the the degree to which it's unethical, I think, is 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 very low. And I don't know what what the norms would be to to you know make it ethical. Maybe like oh you need to debrief after the experiment and tell the no, doctors like oh these were fake guys. No, for, for me it's really the the resource allocation. For me it's ultimately what it comes down to. It's like you can you know you can take I don't know the 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 fifteen minutes that it took. To fool the doctor, that's fine. But if you're wasting hospital resources and mm. making it so five actual crazy people are still out there because of you guys, that that kind of sucks. At, at the same time, I agree with you. At the same time, it doesn't seem like they were using many resources for them. You know, yeah. you know, there were uh, especially attentional resources. Exactly, there are tables in uh, in there, and it, it's weird. It's weird the way this. This article was set up. They talk about like the the alternative the the control experiment they they did for the Rosenhan study, <laughs> which was just oh, so within the 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 Rosenhan experiments where they were inside the psychiatric hospitals, they had the pseudo patients come up to staff and nurses, doctors and nurses, or just staff in general, yeah. and ask them questions. Do you remember what the questions were? It's like, oh, what am I getting discharged, or like, when is the committee gonna hear me out? Yeah, exactly. When when is my meeting or whatever? And something like uh, ninety total ninety percent either looked away or yeah uh, just didn't by, engage with them. They walked by, yeah. didn't engage with them at all, and like five percent or something stopped and talked with with the people. So uh, largely they were just getting ignored. And then the control study was done. Um, where was it done? Yeah, in some university. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically, his version of a control. <laughs> Or like placebo is asking questions of people like him, Rosenhan, walking up to people and asking them questions just to, to be able to use it as a comparative measure 
for how the people in the hospitals were being treated. And I feel like that's just such a rudimentary understanding of what a control is. Look, people, when you talk to them, stop. And in psychiatric hospital, they don't. But at the same time, you have to have a control. Like you, you, like you understand, like for the, for the scientific yeah. thing. No, I understand. Yeah. It's also, I don't know, we didn't see the sample size of it, but it makes sense to be like, okay, look at how 5% of mm. people are paying attention to these people. But what if I walk up to someone in the street and ask them a question? If I discover that 10% of people pay attention to me, then that's not that worrying that 5% pay, pay attention in hospitals. But, but if it's 80%, which yeah. it was, right, around 80%, then 5% is kind of worrying. But you're not, at the same time, you're not only changing one variable. You're not, you know... Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're not walking up to people in university and asking them, when am I going to get my hearing? When am I getting out? It's not the same thing. If you walked up to staff as a pseudo, pa pseudo patient and asked in how, how much time is there before lunch, then maybe they would have paid attention to you and treated you better. But if the question you're asking is a question they keep hearing over and over again from uh, from people that, you know, actually should be in, in psychiatric hospitals, I don't think it's fair to, to you know, just assess, to, to, to generalize to the conditions of psychiatric hospitals in general, just from that question specifically. You know Not what I'm saying? Certainly, yeah. but as you said earlier, he did something rather than nothing for control. So whatever, yeah. right? Whatever. Now, I think the most worrying thing, and this is, I mean, I think, you know, I think society is cyclical and I think old patterns just repeat themselves in more sophisticated ways. If we were to consider the modern version, I'll just say what it is and then we'll talk about what I'm referring to as a study. Criminal accusations. Okay, and this is, in the study, what it, was represented as is healthy healthy person behavior interpreted as illness because of confirmation bias. So essentially in the study, once the diagnosis was confirmed, behavior such as waiting 30 minutes before lunch in, in front, front of the, the cafeteria. cafeteria was attributed to oral acquisitive syndrome. And uh, this is something I think a psychiatrist explained to his uh, resident students when uh, they were observing the... the uh, the pseudo patients outside of the cafeteria so that's worrying another thing was these pseudo patients had to take notes um, quite extensive notes by the way like percentage of time spent of the day with patients is you know you gotta you gotta record your stuff yeah, yeah and their writing behavior so just the fact they were constantly writing and taking notes was attributed to uh their mental illness was it, I, I only remember the passage where they say like in the beginning they had to disguise they they thought they would have to disguise it but then it was seen as normal it wasn't seen it, as, they were uh, just weren't suspected of anything more exactly exactly it. It, it just was revealed to not be as suspicious that they first thought as they first thought right 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 by the way speaking of suspicion 30 out of 120 patients suspected that they were fake and one of them even expressed it vocally and said, um, you're, you're a journalist, a journalist. You're, you're inspecting the hospital. <laughs> and still, the, the patient who was held the, for the longest was like 52 or 53 days. Now, also, another interesting fact that we didn't say is, the, the way this is approached in the thing we read is funny, but this is done across, like these eight patients went to eight different hospitals across America, poor and rich, uh, shabby and new. Well-staffed and not well-staffed. Well staffed and not well-staffed. Private and public. So, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if this were done with a sample size of 30, however much more that would have brought to the study, although heavily unethical, um, I think it would have been... I mean, it, it was, to be fair, it was an extremely destruct destructive thing for psychiatry at the time, by the way. Like, this was the leading thing of the anti-psychiatry movement. It has 
4,400 citations? citations on NCBI or whatever. So, mm -hmm. which is essentially, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson status in the, in the psycho. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so it was destructive. So my thing was, and let me bounce these ideas off of you. The modern version of that is when you get accused of something, let's say someone just, you know, hates you for some reason and they can't do much against you. They can accuse you of something. And now every behavior, every, well, yeah, every new behavior, every past behavior will be analyzed with this confirmation bias of, okay, well, yeah, if this guy is accused of being guilty of this thing, well, then obviously this relates to his behavior of that. And it's almost, you know, we're reading Mary Estelle. She says that, anyway, it's a text on marriage and in the 1700s of, you know, how women are represented in marriage. But the main thing she says is you shouldn't only be able to prove that you're not cheating on your husband you should be so virtuous as to never be suspected of it and this is almost how you should act these days with psychiatry with the legal system with maybe cheating even it's due to the strength of confirmation bias once you're suspected of something or so, if someone wants you to be in a certain position where you are suspected of something not that you're done but you should have retro retroactively been so like holier no, than thou. I, I wanted to say holier than thou, but that's not what that means. <laughs> like you should, you should have been so holy and so irreproachable that not only did you not exhibit those behaviors, but you were you could never even be suspected to have exhibited those behaviors. So look, it, it, let's say let's say I do a like I'm accused of a violent crime in the future. All the podcast up, um, clips where I raise my voice at you will be interpreted as displays of violence. Right. 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 So it's not only you can't do the thing, you can't even do the th uh, things that indicate that you might be someone who would do the thing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a big thing today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was about to say just like you're attributing it to today. Maybe that's all that's left. You know, that, that worry you have is about confirmation bias and it, it's ever present. You know, it, it's like women getting accused of being witches and then everything is confirmation, confirmation, confirmation about, yeah, they're a witch. Now we've decided. Yeah, but if, the... if they don't sink, they're obviously a witch, though. Right, right. If they... they float, they're a witch. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it kind of, that, that part kind of makes sense. So let's, let's get Just back to the in actual. In terms of science and yeah, gravity. Of science, yeah. <laughs> um, right, right. So I think it's an, an ever-present problem with humans. Did they do RCTs on witches? Sorry, continue. <laughs> a witch actually invented RCTs and disproved the <laughs> sinking... <laughs> theory paradigm, paradigm the shift. Theory, there's a paradigm shift and now we okay but yeah yeah definitely and maybe maybe it's an ever uh, it's more present problem that you're sensing because uh, because of social media there's a lot of content a lot of actual material for people to analyze uh whereas back in the day it was just hearsay just what people said about you and it's much easier online to create a sort of false idea about what a person who a person is and in my opinion, to, to hate a person, it's much easier. I feel like a lot of people, you know, create these ideas in their heads about people online that are completely false, first of all, because they're within, you know, their, their bubble that hates that specific person, let's say, and they have confirmation bias and every little thing that person does is interpreted as hating. First of all, the idea they have of that person is false. And second, that's not at all the idea they would have of the person if they just met and talked in in real life like i feel like it's so much easier and and there's a sort of a lower threshold for people to hate people online just because they don't have the same opinion or something whereas 
if you cross that person in the street, you would treat them with all the, you know, the dignity that you, you would treat anyone. And you would probably get a good impression of the, of the person because mostly people, you know, act civilly in a civil manner. Yeah, I think it's, it's part of the, the culture of only what, what I call the juice, right? You, you don't want the say that Say that once more just cre- clearly. No, no, no. It's, it was pretty clear the first time. Okay. The juice? Yeah, the juice. And it's, it's about not wanting to, you know, go through the trouble of peeling the orange and, you know, <laughs> chewing and whatever. You want the orange juice, right? You want the sweet part. You want the flavor-filled part. And you want to pour it in a glass and drink it. And this is what we do as humans. The more our science allows us to do this, the more we just squeeze out the juice, get the hedonistic... I think I call it, call it uh, hedonistic filtration. You, you take out all the difficulties associated with it and you get the juice, right? So, <laughs> so this is what talking online is, right? Oh, I don't need to, you know, pay a carrier pigeon and wait for two weeks and, you know, learn calligraphy and write a beautiful letter and infuse it, and infuse it with emotion and care and craft my words carefully i can just text you an abbreviation of what i mean like gm right good morning that you know that that for the record means... you don't text me that so and thank god oh okay well then well i didn't get it this morning well then my cell phone has been bugging for the last three years <laughs> but and that 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 means so much less right and we definitely perceive this right we, we get tired of the things quickly we things that are beautiful that should be beautiful don't don't fill us with that passion and this is the thing when you infuse a letter with care right like in romeo and juliet all these romances and hiding and um and you know the 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 family difficulties and showing up at the bottom of a balcony it has nothing to do with like the modern day swiping on tinder and being like hey what's up Uh, you want to get coffee tomorrow right like yeah yeah. there is no passion anymore right there is no peeling of the orange there's no chewing and okay, well, that was a small you're, you're rant. hungry. You haven't presented a new theory in, in like 10 episodes. True, true. I am hungry, but it's not a new theory. Yeah, I wrote about this like four months ago, but <laughs> if you read my blog, but um, what I want to say with this is we bypass the difficulty of discovering a person and seeing the good and the bad and actually having meaning, uh, having a meaningful interaction with them. So we get this juice, right? These clips taken out of context indeed and that paint any picture you would want right like if every time i interrupted you across these even these 27 episodes who knows what's going to happen in a year right but just get a compilation of every time i interrupted you okay i'm now someone that interrupts right i don't see myself as someone who interrupts people right right right, right? or even and, like and i don't see you that way either yeah. and i'm i'm the one here talking yeah, with the, you yeah you're the one here so so who has the more realistic idea the person that, you know, scrutinizes all the videos because they hate you and want to paint you as that person or yeah. the person currently in the interaction with you <laughs> that that is the one affected by the thing they're talking about. Yeah, 100%. So th- all I mean by that is this is an effect of only wanting the juice, right? You get the diabetes. <laughs> so that's that's all I have to say. So okay, yeah. now uh, we've kind of strayed, right? We've kind yeah, of strayed. yeah, yeah. Uh, about about the Rosenhan thing, what the, the thoughts that I had was it it clearly i feel like we've been you know sort of playing devil's advocate sometimes and going against and for the study or whatever but you know obviously it's a very important study and the anti-psychiatry movement was important and led to important improvements in the psychiatric system but it feels to me like very weird retroactively to to see that and 
think about how all of that was treated. I feel like, well, the way I understand, uh, you know, how psychological disorders are diagnosed and, and treated, especially personality disorders, let's say uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. I think it's, it's sort of, you know, it's a spectrum and you can be closer to the end where you're, you have uh, obsessive compulsive PD uh, and closer to the side where you don't have it at all. And I'm someone somewhere on the spectrum, like somewhere in the middle. I don't have like no symptoms, but not enough to get diagnosed. What I'm trying to say is the way that these things, these diagnoses work uh, is like after a certain gravity is reached and critically after it starts to interfere with your daily life. I think that's the important thing. That's that's like that's when it's diagnosed and that's when when it becomes a problem. And I guess with with the pseudo patients just being uh, in the psychiatric hospital and, you know, not having anything interfere with their daily functioning at all. It's weird to have them be diagnosed that way. But I think this is one of the results of the times because because this was so dramatic, a discovery. This is what led to today's, okay, there are eight symptoms exhibited during this disease. You have to have five at the very least, and it has to impede on your daily function. Like, all of the rationality of that was only concluded because of such monstrous things happening in the past. So it feels, it feels natural. I don't think how wild you described that it feels to you that one symptom that wasn't even in the DSM was yeah. enough to admit someone and give them 260 pills on average during their stay without them exhibiting symptoms after being admitted. All of that is only the motivation for which today we can sit here and say, well, that was crazy. Right. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, good for the anti-psychiatry um, movement but also speaks, speaks volumes about confirmation bias. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. pretty crazy, and it, it just speaks to how powerful, powerful it is. So yeah, another thing we didn't mention, it was a two-part study, and the second part, they told psychiatrists about the first experiment. Mm. So they were open, they, were, they, they, you know, they informed them about the, the details, and then said that they would send pseudo-patients to their hospital and that they would have to rate the likelihood that any given patient, yeah, any given patient was a pseudo patient. But again, this was deception, and they weren't actually going to send these pseudo patients. Yeah, yeah. So whatever number these doctors were going to rate to be fake patients, above zero was going to make them, you know, appear <laughs> appear wrong. Which is, yeah, I found that less convincing. But just to to say the figures, 23 out of 193 patients admitted during the period where the study was done were considered pseudo-patients by... Were suspected to be pseudo-patients. Well, were strongly suspected to be right. pseudo-patients yeah. by a psychiatrist. So, and there were, was there was also consistency because 19 of the 23 were suspected by a psychiatrist and another staff member. Uh-huh. So essentially 10%. Now, when I read that, I was like, well... Maybe that's also the rate at which actually people that weren't sick showed up there mm. and uh, being admitted. Okay, I see. Wouldn't you say? It's a realistic. Say? Well, for the 1970s, it's a realistic percentage. Why? Why would? Why would people show up to psychiatric hospitals to be admitted? Well, again, man, but like environment is huge, and if they are having 
you know, an episode of high stress, they might think they have a general anxiety disorder. And in those moments, like if you, if you, if you don't have these strict criteria of for the last three months, how have you felt? Has, have these episodes ever happened in the past? And without the proper medication that could calm down uh, an acute episode, what, what else are they going to do but get admitted? If they wake up with, you know, cold sweats in the middle of the night and they can't concentrate on anything and they can't work, their, their function is impaired. But all it was was like the initial stress of getting a new job or something. Like, well, what are you going to do? Now they're going to go see a psychologist. But before? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, okay, as for practical consequences, I mean, don't, just don't go into psychology. It's a dead field, obviously. No. That's, that's like, no matter what we talk about, that's your conclusion at the end about everything. Might as well pre-record it and just stick it at the end, like, as a pre-recording. And just, you, you just do this to the... <laughs> so, yeah, uh, uh, confirmation bias. I, I think that's the main thing, yeah. Like, obviously good for psych, uh, anti-psychiatry. I think it's obvious and huge, but uh, for, to me, what resonates is the confirmation bias and how we need to pay attention to that in real life and really you know have a devil's advocate in your head at all times doubting what you currently think yeah the, the, i call it the, the courtroom of the mind you have to have you have to be the judge and you have to have these defense attorneys like you have to consider all the facts in a cold cold-hearted manner where the facts are the facts and just be little scientists in your mind like if this were if you were in front of a an an ethics committee and referees and independent peer review uh, participants, would this slide? Or did you just hear it from a video? For, for me, for me, the, the way I do it is literally imagine you're, you are the other side. Like your interests are weighed against whatever biases mm. might lead you to your conclusion. And it, well, to, to me, that's pretty easy. You know, I can imagine being like that human and having those interests and arguing the the best I can for the other side. And after that, you've considered the best arguments for both sides, and you can think clearly, too. Yeah, for me, it's easier because I'm usually right in that sense. So what's the next... So, yeah, uh... so the next segment is um, the episode, episode 139 of yes. Very Bad Wizards, correct? It was on honor. It was a little bit of a, a summary episode of uh, Tamler Summer's book, why honor matters and it went into some interesting things let me let me pull up my notes so in honor cultures which i pictured in my head when i had to think about those it was south america okay i pictured uh like the american midwest interesting okay whoa mm. they are partner yeah i i don't know i don't know about that because i don't feel as though they have a strong sense of community i mean you know Stereotypically, it seems as though they might have a strong hate of outgroup. But have you ever said, "That's that's my cowboy friend," and you're not gonna insult him, like you know? Well, I, I can imagine a bar fight starting just because someone insults yeah, someone. Yeah, because anyway. like they're drinking buddies. That seems like the the deepest link they can share. No, the <laughs> you're reducing. Anyway, well, what the concrete example they do give is Algeria. With Zinedine Zidane. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and then there's, there are dignity cultures, which is more the North American yeah. type. Okay, we agree on that. And in dignity cultures, identity is kind of a, a mask that we put on, whereas in honor cultures, identity is 
specifically your role in the group? Well, I'm not sure if identity is a mask you put on. I think the point was in... Well, it's something he said at the beginning. He said that, yeah. It's a mask you put on. Because what I got from, from it uh, was dignity in dignity cultures, it's, I mean, it's basically very individualistic uh, cultures where your sense of identity doesn't depend on other people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you put on a mask for your identity. It's just, well, yeah, it's not clear how you look for your identity and what your role in the world is, honestly. As, you know, they, they sort of, they, they comment on the fact that in dignity cultures, the ideal is sort of like, uh, go on a trip somewhere in India and alone and look for your identity, look for who you are. And it's not clear what that even means at I, all. I was really happy when they said that because it's, it is the, the you know, the archetype of everything i hate right like <laughs> let me go self-discover myself in bali and uh dave actually says something where's bali um <laughs> you carry on dave says like off like to the right of south america it's like a an island or something we'll we'll fact check that okay we'll, we'll check it so dave says as though there is a like a reservoir of identities somewhere out there in India near the And you're beach. looking for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just like going, going there and looking for it. And that is exactly how I feel, right? Those uh, students going abroad and like discovering the other countries and like partying abroad is, is, is quite comical. But again, a, a radical change in environment definitely gives you a good, some good information about yourself because what remains constant? Right, you go to that other country, you get a new job, you get new friends. What remains constant, and that kind of answers, because you know, one thing you understand from psychology is that we like to think that identity comes first and then behavior. Right? It's like I know I must do this, and therefore I will act ethically. It's quite often, if not more often, the opposite. Right? That's what cognitive dissonance is. You do something, and you're like, oh. Right. I don't care that much about stealing because I, I just stole there. Oh, I don't like, care that much about cheating because I helped my friend. Like, you discover yourself through your actions. This is, I think what I'm about to say is only for Chris, but this is actually like the, the larger thing with uh, Piaget is uh, his, like the, the current of thought he follows constructivism is that, you know, he talked a lot about development, but he said that's actually the way we learn, have a sense of identity believe the things we believe is that we act something out like the babies learn i don't know by by doing first and we saw right, a, lot, right. a lot of you, that you, in you child know they can only learn 3d rotation if they themselves can sit and hold and, and exactly. manipulate an object but that's how values are formed and that's how everything is formed from the bottom up actually that's why there's a lot of cognitive dissonance when you have someone else's idea which you haven't acted out that comes into your mind and some ideology you know like uh, hedonism or deontology or something and it sometimes it doesn't make sense to you uh, but it, it's not you because you haven't acted it out and yeah that's just just yeah. so i'm sure cognitive dissonance is, cl is clear to everyone essentially if you if you categorically oppose stealing and then you're put in a, a situation where you either have to steal and the smaller the reward for it the the larger the cognitive dissonance will be right so if i motivate you to steal i, I say hey go, go steal me that apple from that merchant i'll give you a thousand dollars you're like the cost benefit of there's not a lot of competing on your morality uh, yeah it, it is not that large you but can justify I, it i'm receiving a thousand dollars that's why i'm doing it exactly but if i 
if I, uh, yeah, if I negotiate it down to $1, and I just give you $1 for stealing an apple for me, your, the cognitive dissonance will be much larger, where you'll say, well, I did it with so little motivation. Maybe I, I am for stealing things, right? So yeah, that's what cognitive dissonance is. And um, let's, I mean, we're not going to have a long talk of, of honor. It could precede our, our conversation, our eventual conversation of, uh, on revenge. We sort of like gave a two second introduction and then skipped a, a, an honor culture the way Tamler describes it. First of all, there's a large emphasis on reputation, right, within that community. So your your reputation actually matters. And as a result, insults are a big thing. Like you you, you have to defend yourself from insults because your reputation is a very important thing. Um, and they contrasted with dignity cultures where, you know, an insult is sort of irrelevant. It sh should be rationalized and, and like, oh, what they said is just not true. I shouldn't react to it. That's how I saw it, right? It's like, if you think about it rationally, you know, I'm not what they said I am. And so it doesn't matter and I should ignore them. Yes. So, okay. Well, let me introduce this idea of false consciousness. So people from dignity cultures will sometimes say, no, these people cannot be happy. Let's Let's talk about an extreme case of like, arranged marriage right in cultures where that that's accepted and women are raised with the idea that that is the norm and let's I mean, say a western yeah of course but to, to my point if a westerner were to see that interact with a woman in an arranged marriage and see her being happy uh she he would accuse her of false consciousness which which is essentially a feeling of well you can't be happy with your current identity because it was predetermined for you and if you you actually went out there and searched and knew all the options you'd be happier so i think that kind of summarizes the the risk and benefit of both in honor cultures you have a guide it is your role yeah, yeah. in the society in the group and it is very constrained obviously yeah just quickly uh, in honor cultures reputation matters so insults matter and your sense of identity is tied to your uh, group let's say your your family or or some community you're tightly linked with yes and tamler actually says a really good point constraints of an art form is often the source of creativity uh, -huh. uh we know this from psychological literature which says that you know the, the more constrained your the, the criteria for uh, whatever art form you want to do the the more creativity you will have uh, this works for haikus i think that's although the structure itself is unremarkable when you when you put such tight constraints on poetry if you want to call it that, you'll have a lot of things that are kind of, I mean, beautiful, considered by some. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, you have some... I, I didn't let any of my own bias seep <laughs> through there. No confirmation bias. You have these... It wasn't, no, not confirmation no, no, yeah, bias. Not at all. Uh, have these tight constraints, and so you're forced to explore and imagine, optimize, right? The, find the best in, in those tight conditions that you have. Whereas if you're, you have you know, all the space and all the freedom in the world, uh, you can do anything. And so maybe you do nothing. Yeah. So if I were to put you in front of an art board, give you every color, no art board, a board for art, <laughs> canvas and whatever, and give you every color, you, you, you'll kind of be lost. Right. But if I tell you, here are all the shades of red. I want to, I want you to draw me a horse. What's going to come out of that? is likely to be much more unique and inspired and creative because I've put such a constraint on it. And this is, you know, opportunities are infinite. And as Westerners, 
we saw we see this as a positive point but ultimately one of the biggest things is that we get lost and that's the ultimate thing right there there is no guide so if we if you see this constraint on on criteria as a source of creativity and apply it to the self maybe optimistically you can see that honor culture honor cultures have it figured out much more yeah well it, it, i think it's always a question of of balance between the two and there's there are easy examples of how honor cultures go wrong and easy examples it, it's more it's more salient to my mind of you know interacting with people in our dignity culture how everyone is just like lost and like uh, I, I don't know what i'm going to do with my life i don't know blah, blah, blah. the you know I think it's a good point that the reason for that is that no one imposes a value structure on you. No one says, look, this is what is important. You should do this. And even as I say this, it sounds wrong to me because it's imposing something on someone. But the, the, the alternative sometimes is nihilism, that nothing matters. And we sort of have to figure that out on our own. There, there's, there's a beauty in being told, look, this is what matters. Okay, you're imposed something. But then when you do it and you do it well, you have a deep, deep feeling of I'm contributing to this world and I'm, I'm, I'm doing something for the, for the better. Whereas in dignity cultures, if you're just completely free and don't come up with a value structure of your own, you're just doing, you're nihilistic. You're doing nothing. You're doing something for no reason. Yeah, like imagine, imagine waking up like as a Westerner, as so often they do. And in mid-adolescence, you just, you just realize one day like, Oh, you know, nothing matters. I, I I don't know what to do, whatever. In honor cultures, you'd wake up, you'd say that. Your mom would just be like, what do you mean nothing matters? You have to feed the family. Go work right now. Go, go, yeah, go. Yeah. There would be no depression. I wanted to check the depression rates of honor cultures versus mm. dignity cultures. I forgot, unfortunately. But again, the, these constraints, although for, for, for my entire life, I've been for the blank slate theory of I should discover the world myself. Everything I've been taught, I wish... To come up with it myself because that will make it authentic right even though i've been taught for some good lessons in my life if i can't come up with it myself and this is my big thing about religion right i was just born in an apocalyptic world with no books and no one to teach me about religion i wouldn't come up with the idea of christ and that's that's literally my biggest problem about it i would come up with philosophy which is yeah. why i hold it so dear in any case i'm sure you and i can agree that when you look at these uh, factors in uh, in honor cultures, it just seems so much more respectable. Like l look at what Tumblr Tumblr said was one of the uh, the biggest consistencies between honor cultures. In honor cultures, you stand up for yourself, and you're against a third party interference in whatever like for revenge or mediation. So this this idea at job interviews, you're asked if your colleague did did this and this. What what would you proceed to do? Look, I always honestly say I would discuss it with them first. Right. And you know those, you know how it feels when, I'm sure, I'm sure maybe you have an example from movies, but even maybe from real life, when you do something wrong and a colleague reports you directly to the person up above instead of addressing it with you first. Does that ever happen to you? Probably. I can't bring something to mind. That uh, feels right. like the most wrong thing ever. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you have to realize is this is between me and you, right? Like we're, we're we're doing the same job we're trying our best and if i didn't know something i'm not worthy of a punishment or even to be you know scolded by the person above because let, let's solve this between us first right That's yeah, yeah the the, what comes to mind is, is though is you know between friends you know you, people you know at school when 
you interact with someone and they don't like it and they don't tell you. And the only way you find out is through your friend oh, yeah. who also talked to that person. That's the worst. Yeah. And they say, oh, yeah, well, he, uh, that person actually doesn't like you because you did this, this, this. And you're like, I, I, I had no know. idea. What yeah, do you, what do you want know. me to do? I, I had no idea. And that's, that's definitely a lack of respect for the person you're holding back information from because ultimately, well, optimistically, everyone wants to just get better. So if you were to inform me, Instead of being punished directly and hating you for it and creating the cycle, that could have been solved. And this is what honor cultures have figured out, right? You don't call the police, right? This is between me and you. I, I hear this often in rap songs, right? Even the, though there are gang wars, the ultimate thing you don't do is use police as a weapon against the other gang. It's, it's uh -huh. between me and you. And whatever happens, the police is even the, the worst enemy. Right, right. Right? So, you, like, you're... You're the enemy, but the police is even worse than that. Yeah, and there's something there's respectable no... in that, right? Like, I just feel that is respectable. Solving your own problems, I guess, not depending on, on someone else. That's why you, you feel that way, yeah. Yeah, because this, is always, this has always been between me and you, right? And maybe it's this return to the state of nature where there was no judge, there was no arbiter. And I think that, that police and everything like that is important for people who can't help themselves. But if you can help yourself, it will be so much more honorable to... You'll you know confront that that coworker and say hey you don't do this to me right you don't do this to me there's something to yeah it. that that for sure I think there's another reason though for for people not confronting people right away maybe as a side effect of being a dignity culture too whenever something oh, oh how would I say this you, you don't want to say something that makes you seem like you're insulting the person either I feel like people fear uh fear criticizing people because the other person wouldn't take it well and actually i think most of the time people don't take criticism well so it's sort of justified but the cure to that is just not caring that you know they're offended about the criticism because you know that what you want what's best for them and here here's an interesting distinction uh offend of offense versus insults insult right yeah. like insults are actual things that exist in honor cultures essentially what we have is offense where reputation isn't even involved. Oh, right, and right. what you said is about, you know, not, uh, not hurting the other person, not about, all of these things are related to insecurities, which is significantly less important than reputation. Upholding reputation and a true insult in an honor culture matters. Zidane, who in the World Cup final, playing for Team France, his sister sister was insulted, and he's a legendary soccer player, or football, for all our overseas fans, Head, legendarily headbutted uh, his opponent and got a red card, and France lost that game. But he, they say this in the episode, there's a 15-foot statue of the headbutt erected in, uh, in his honor. Uh, I don't know where, probably in Algeria, right? Well, it, it was displayed in the Museum oh, in of Modern Museum, Arts in right. France for a while, yeah. In well, France? France, yeah. For whom he lost the World Cup, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah. Which is pretty funny. The Sorbonne, I think. Um, and but I think it's an important distinction between insult and offense, and, and offense right? Because what what me going up to someone being like, oh, I, you know, confronting that person, what I wish everyone did, and just saying what you did there, like I, I really didn't like for this reason and this reason, not attacking the person once again importantly not attacking the person saying but their behavior your behavior was wrong but people sort of identify with their behavior and, and instantly get defensive and that's a problem but bad parenting shame versus guilt exactly emphasize guilt um 
and and that's you know them taking offense which that's all on them and insult is someone actually going against your person specifically wanting to ha cause harm right and i listen i'm i'm on the side of zidane so let me circle back to what you just said about zidane now so uh, for, for, for the the shame versus guilt thing it's a part of parenting can you can you remind me what it's what's not, the good one i mean it's not a part of parenting it's just the description of the feelings of shame and guilt right very very early on by three years old i think you can you can distinguish behavior of children who feel more feel more guilt or more shame and i don't think i don't think that's the point no guilt is associated with a desire to fix the problem that was that was just uh that that just happened and, and would be instilled in you by using phrases like what you've done is bad, don't do that again. The behavior. Instead of shame, where it's, shame is a you are a bad boy. Shame, shame and guilt both refer to uh, you know, so, sort of regret, self-consciousness yeah. about the behavior we just did. Guilt is associated with a desire to fix the problem. Shame is associated with a desire to retreat and hide from, uh, from parents. And guilt is instilled by attacking the behavior you just did. Shame is instilled by attacking your person. Like, you're a bad boy. Like, you... you, you you're bad. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, well, yeah, no, no mention of behavior. So in discussing duels, right, yeah. which is a very honor culture thing, Pinker says honor, the strange commodity that exists because everyone else thinks it exists. Now, I think that's pretty deep. And Tamler, I think, opposes this as a rudimentary view and like a Western perspective on it. But it doesn't feel unfair at all. That is exactly what it is. We're all playing a game and the only reason I care about this is because I know that everyone else cares about this. Now, of course, calling it a strange commodity may be insulting and unfair and perhaps condescending, but that is exactly what it is, right? It's like it's like when you're playing a, bo a board game and we all want to have fun because we've constrained ourselves to the rules and then you starting, start, like, start stealing from the Monopoly bank because you don't like the fact that you're losing. Well, guess what? The win is going to feel less good as well. So you don't get the good aside from the bad, the juice. It's a strange... I feel like because we're so detached and we're not an honor culture, it feels unreal. But at the same time, I think it would feel as unreal as our um, putting, you know, money and status on a pedestal in our society right now would feel alien to, to someone in another culture where... All that stuff doesn't matter, and, and all that matters is, you know, uh, having your family comfortable and not... You, you know what I'm saying? Like, Which is it's done just... through money. That's the thing. That's a tangible thing that is inevitable, and acquiring more of it will increase the, the commodity level. Whereas honor, if we all refuse to play the game and everyone can just insult them, uh, like, between themselves, what happens? I don't know, like, internet happens, cyberbullying, uh, well, okay, what then? That's It's not something tangible. If you choose, well, okay. This is one of the things that's criticized, one of the logic that is criticized by people who are deep in honor cultures, and I understand that it wouldn't apply for them, but my perspective on insults is where just get over it, right? What, what is being said about you is either true or false. If it's true, work on the thing. If it's false, ignore the thing. Yeah, that's yeah. just all it is. I, the image I have in my head that justifies sort of honor cultures, and I have some honor culture intuitions that i can bring up but it is just that if you take the insult in that way and not everyone is as rational as you are and not everyone thinks like you do that it actually doesn't matter and, and you 
you you tell everyone indirectly that it's okay for you to insult me. I'm just going to take it. I'm here for you to insult and you can do it as much as you want. And they have no reason to not do it because it doesn't matter. It's yeah. not true. And they can say whatever they want to you. That's I think that's a preface on our episode on revenge. I would like to get into that for revenge. Mm -hmm. But right now, as for honor, it just doesn't seem like that much of a tangible thing. Maybe, okay, let me, let me know what you think about transferring this conversation to one of the final topics that interests me. And it's essentially internet cultures. It's, it's dignity cultures that probably have this intuition about how good it feels to be part of a community, which is, by the way, a modern problem because back in the day, a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago when our brains were created, we, we lived in these small communities and honor cultures were this default state where, look, you, you live in a family or a village of like 30 people and all of these people matter much more to you than the outgroup. And that's what, that's how it's going to be. And there's no way you can take an insult, right? Um, now, what internet communities do is they, again, try to get the juice, right? They try to identify themselves with communities online, but they didn't go through the struggles of having real the, the real human conversations being together through the ups and the downs they, they just responded to a few posts about oh we have this common interest kind of and then they mistake this for being a community and the problem with that oh, do you want to say something yeah no no go ahead F finish your thing yeah so the, the 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 best problem with that that was identified is that young Young puppies that aren't raised with other dogs can't regulate their bite strength. Exactly. So when, you know, when they engage in, in play early on in their life and the other, and they bite too hard once and the dog, the other dog squeals, they get the social feedback that that is a wrong strength. And therefore they can't really engage in play and like interact with other dogs later on. Well, no, no, no. If, if they squeal, no, no, the, they the, have the feedback. If they don't get the squeal, then they're, well, the, they never... I, I started with young puppies that okay. don't grow up with other dogs. So okay. that's what I meant. Yes, yes. So essentially, if you're not socialized early, you're going to have trouble socializing, obviously. Now, the thing about that is all these social problems of today's youth and internet communities and... What are the social the, problems of the archetype, Well, the archetype of a gamer who can't talk to the opposite sex or the that's one of the archetypes from jung right yeah one, one of the young's young's <laughs> original archetypes uh the, the, the reddit mod <laughs> the, the the basement dweller and uh i mean look I, I can see this all around me with my friends telling me about these things i can see it when i was part of such communities and i i just heard how they talked some, some some people's identity entire identity is based online and the reason for that is all of these fake interactions, right? All of this extraction of the juice, all of this. Say you want to be part of a cause, right? And you choose to join all these communities, all these Reddit communities that confirm your bias, right? Confirm your thinking that that is the right thing to do or that is the best community on earth. And you get all these, this positive feedback of people just telling you, uh, yes, you should keep thinking like that. Oh, here's an argument for it, for it. You become extreme in your views, blah, blah, blah. Then you go out into the real world and you kind of have to face the fact that 90% of people aren't going to agree with you. And that's a harsh reality. And um, yeah, the recommendation from the Very Bad Wizards is give people a nibble, right? Like you, you got to regulate your bites. So 
You have to give real people a real nibble before before knowing how to socialize. So, and if they squeal, you stop. Supposedly, yeah, that's 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 what they said. They argue for. Now we we didn't go extensively into the Zidane story, but a a, th a noteworthy thing is that he put his family name above France. Yeah. And the way that's described by Dave is that in his history, what came first is his family, then Algeria, or the specific region in Algeria, Algeria where he's from, and then France, because he moved there later. So there was a very clear hierarchy, and probably the people who contributed to his growth as a person were also classified exactly in that hierarchy. So it definitely makes sense to, to, to be loyal to that. And I, I don't know if they like nitpicked this passage, but you remember that passage that I found wild, as wild as they did, is like, the, the person says, oh, uh, Zidane's opponent didn't even insult something like uh, his race. They just insulted his sister, which sounded wild to me. Yes, I think that's a person who is deeply in the you know this americanized like dignity culture yeah where where dignity cultures are just like hey we don't have enough problems and we find this whole honor culture you know what? they're depicted on tv these these gangster shows these gangster movies of uh revenge or i'm never gonna let it go your grandfather killed my grandmother uh, this is gonna go on for ages all of these things and we glorify it and whatever and we we know that there's this primitive, not in the bad sense, but like in the original way societies functioned primitive sense of there is something honorable in this. And we want to get back to it, but we do it so inaptly as to be like, ah, we don't have enough problems. Let's create these like fake in-groups and out-groups. Let's create these political parties where you can bond over like some flag or some, some vote but that's not real. You didn't yeah, yeah. live with them. You didn't grow up with them. Real communities have the good, the bad, the the history, the the investment, the if you insult my sister, it's over. Like all bets are off. We're we're fighting. Yeah. Well, well, the reason it didn't make sense to me is just let's say Zidane, he's Al Algerian. He's Algerian, and then he moves to France. Uh, you know, pretty early on, he's raised in France. It, should his Algerian nationality take precedence over the woman he was raised with and had his whole life to spend with. And you spend the whole, your whole life with a person. I It's obvious to me that my relationship to you takes precedence over my Canadian citizenship. Like, oh, what yeah, does that yeah. even mean? That means nothing. I There's so, ma so much diversity in the Canadian, in, in the country that... I have nothing in common with, common with some of these people, and same geographical region. Like it doesn't yeah, mean anything. Yeah, more in common with some people. More like uh, that's why I post national pride so much. Yeah, like, yeah. What did you do? You voted twice during the last five, seven years. Like what? You paid taxes because that's the only legal thing to do. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and it's just I don't think like I think people want to rationally argue for. Oh, but he, it's an insult against his sister, and it doesn't really matter, and other things matter more. But there's. In everyone, I feel like there's this sort of intuition of this tribalism, they call it a bit. And and it sounds so derogative too, but it, you know, I, I'm not I'm not ashamed of having a little tribalism for my family, let's say. Like if if you do something wrong, and I know you've done something wrong, right? The truth is you've done something wrong. And then someone la uh, lashes back at you. Oh, this is why I said lash back. Okay, someone lashes, this is the right way to say it now. <laughs> someone lashes back at you, but you know, does it over the top a bit? Even though I know you're wrong. I don't I don't care. Like I stand up for you because their little transgression is 
amplified because it's against you. You know, I, I feel like we all have this intuition of, of at least with, with your family, you know? Yeah, when you show up to my doorstep with a body, like, I already have places planned to hide it. <laughs> so... The other way around is more likely, but... I'm going to cut that off for legal reasons, <laughs> but... Uh, and the other thing is, right, you, you, you brought the side of a person who's so deep in the dignity cultures that they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the honor culture. But here's the other funny thing, that even to us, right, we, who, who do live in this dignity culture, is funny of how deep they are in the honor culture. And it's what the guy who got headbutted by the Zidane said in his interviews. So basically, he was, <laughs> he was accused of, um, by some media outlets, to have insulted Zidane's mother. And when, when confronted to the interview, he said, oh, no, no, like, I don't regret insulting his sister or whatever, but let me make this very clear. I wouldn't go as far as to insult his mother, right? So even he had this comprehension that, like, there are some barriers you don't cross within these honor cultures. And, and it's funny to hear, like, to, to Westerners, you'd say, well, mother, sister, whatever, you don't, you don't even know them. What do you mean, like, insult them, get yeah, over yeah. it, blah, blah. No, no, but for them, it's like, this exists, this is very tan tangible. Uh, we're going we're gonna to put up a statue of you, even if you ruined our chance at a world title, which would, you know, would have been on Wikipedia and all these glorious things, such as Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, this is such an honorable thing you did to stand up for your family. That we're gonna put up a statue, and, and that's, also, that's also, beautiful. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. And also to bring some specification, he repeatedly insulted Zidane's family, yeah, and yeah. it's not like just one throwaway phrase, uh, trash talking during the game. It's repeated, and I think that was what he was aiming at, yeah, getting into Zidane's head. Broke the camel's back, but straw get demolished. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard it both ways. So. Uh, oh, we should bring that back, man. For sure, for sure. Um, uh, but, especially I should bring that back. Yeah, you should bring that yeah. back. But it's like, it makes so much internal sense too, though. Like, it, it does seem ridiculous when you hear that. But at the same time, yeah, his mother is the like the woman that brought him into the world. And it would be much worse to insult his mother. There's a respect there, especially like for yeah. Algerian, uh, you know, m Midwestern. Midwestern? No. What I was saying Mid was American Middle East. Middle that's oh, the thing, right? Okay. Middle Eastern, like, there's no way you insult someone's mother. That, that's That's the end. This relates back to the kind of my and St. Augustine's <laughs> view on... I wasn't even kidding. The view on happiness. No, but and mean, it's, it's you do this way too often for it to be... Happiness is the return on investment of, like, risk, right? So you're, if you want to buy into this uh, honor culture, right? Where, you know, in these dignity cultures, as I said, it's the Jews, it's... Everything is lowered. Everything is inhibited. There is an apathy. There is a social distance between everyone that internet puts us through. If you want to buy into this honor culture where everything matters, there's no good without bad. There's no dark without light. And well, there's no light without dark specifically. And if you want to have these loving relationships and care and stand up for your family and uh, have these all, all these beautiful connections and have a sense of community, all of these things, right? Which religion can be related back to that, right? Like, you got to go to the, to the church every single Sunday. Sunday or whatever, or you got to pray these five times a day. You have to connect with these people, all of these sacrifices, and you're never going to get the good without the bad. So the way uh, the, the Very Bad Wizards put it is pr pretty, pretty cool, is that all these critics to what Zidane did don't realize the reason they're invested in the World Cup is 
yeah, cultural it's a very good pride. Point. Yeah, yeah. There wouldn't be France versus X yeah, if yeah. no one cared about this. Like, there's no good. You don't get the juice without the squeeze. You don't get the peel like without the peeling, right? You have to get the good with the bad. And if you want to feel this deep relationship with your sister or whatever, like some some of my friends from here, right? They're they they call their mom by their by by their name, right? They're like, hey, uh, Cindy. Cindy, bring me water. Like, I hear those things, right? You don't get the, the, the respect and the love and the proximity without also absolutely having to headbutt that guy in the, like, the World Cup final mm. and defend your family honor and blah, blah, blah. And the duels, right? Even all that, that makes sense, right? It, it makes so duels much sense honor, intuitively. Yeah. So I think, okay, I, I guess the, the practical point we would bring out of this is um, being ingrained in a dignity culture, consider honor cultures and consider the downsides that you're missing out on uh, by ignoring and sort of minimizing and mocking honor cultures too. And this can all be done gradually, right? If you don't care about your car, for example, and you assign yourself the task of washing it every day and taking it to maintenance at the slightest problem and having its picture as your background, you can cognitive dissonance yourself into caring about that <laughs> car and it can make you happy when you see it because now it's all this return on investment. So all I'm saying is high risk, high reward, and you can choose to put high risk into something and get the high reward. But that's the only way. And I think there's a certain apathy in the West that clashes with that and people ha have to wake up to if, and what a great way to circle back, if that apathy impedes on their life and could be put in the DSM. <laughs> yeah, but also I think I think it starts with an intuition, though. I think you don't, out of nowhere, cognitive dissonance yourself and force yourself to do something you don't want to do. I think deep down, people have a need or a tendency towards having your family mattering way much more than, than, than other things. Uh, and you just follow that intuition more than you would right now if you find that's causing you problems. Very true, but I think the beautiful thing we've revealed maybe in this episode is that it can be a choice. The move can be a choice. If you mere just by choosing to invest more mm. and probably starting by the sacrifice, right? Probably starting by sacrificing that time for your car, then you will get the return on it. And maybe if you were to take it to the extreme and like integrate an honor culture, you show up there, they tell you what your role is, you make the sacrifice of giving up that search for identity, and in five years, when you actually accomplish that role, you'll be much happier. Like that's yeah, a yeah. way to But the, the normal functioning, the way it usually happens, I think, is that you're in Born honor cultures, it. you know, you're, you're brought up into yeah. it, and you have, you don't have that hump to get over of uh, right now being indifferent to, like, a role within a society or whatever. You don't have that Right now, you, you have to, I guess, sort of ignore your surface level intuition that it doesn't matter and that you can be anything and just say, okay, this is what matters and yeah, true. Make a the, choice. The, shift the shift itself costs something more than just being brought up. In, but at the same time, this happens all the time, right? When people, even within dignity cultures, choose careers and choose what they yeah. are going to do, they cognitive, uh, cognitive dissonance themselves into a career. Because when you're an adolescent, young adult, I don't know, you could do anything with your life pretty much yeah. and then you choose one thing and you people justify it to themselves people justify what they're doing right now to themselves very well yes maybe one of the things we've 
we haven't really talked about is the fact that there is no guide in in dignity cultures but we've also i think we, we've talked about it enough just by contrasting it with the appeal of honor cultures uh-huh right so figured it out three two one eight, eight. <laughs> <laughs> okay we, we yeah we have to impose on ourselves the not, next time not putting an eight next you time. know what no i'm gonna say nine you're gonna say nine because okay. look rosenhan experiment there was nothing unclear <laughs> and it was a clear anti-psychiatry movement and for honor even the thing we weren't brought up with and probably disagree with things like duels or caring about insults we've understood them and we've described why they must be understood mm. and it's why they they actually matter yeah if, i'm just not clear about the exact place and emphasis we should place on honor culture on honor culture and how much we should integrate it within our lives it's like atheism versus religion right like it's an alternative choice here is the appeal of both. If there was a clear answer, everyone would be that. Yeah, but you can't be half religious. You can be half honor, half dignity. You can be half religious. You can go to church every month and like enjoy <laughs> the connection that you like the occasional connection you get from it. But I still feel like it's it's either you have faith, you believe, or you don't believe. I feel like that's an extremist view, which is more characteristic of me, but whatever. So <laughs> well, eight point five it is. Thank you for listening. Uh we've been the thinking bros, and I have been Chris for now. Uh, we'll see how it goes in the future we'll see how that goes in the future if you want to find out more go to our website thinkingbros.com or contact us at thinkingbros at gmail.com with your lovely feedback we read every response and he's been Alex and we'll see you next week see ya